Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast, the show where I sit down with former Amazon executives to discuss Amazon's unique principles and processes and tease out how you can apply them to grow and manage your business. I'm Tyler Wallace, a seven-year former Amazonian, current brand consultant, and your host as we learn to think like Amazon. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have Fassel Masood with me on the show. Fassel spent seven plus years at Amazon, running a number of functions and businesses as director of inventory planning, mobile electronics, Amazon warehouse, Amazon buyback, Amazon trade-in, and Amazon basics. Subsequent to Amazon, Fassel spent another nine plus years as an executive at a number of top companies, including eBay, Groupon, Staples, and Alphabet. Last year, Fassel became the CEO of Fabric.inc., a high-growth startup providing headless commerce solutions for retail businesses. Vassal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Well, it's great to have you on with us. And there's a number of businesses that you've managed and run both inside Amazon as well as post your Amazon career. So I'm really interested to dive in a little bit more and understand what you've done in your career. So maybe starting at Amazon, since we'll obviously be spending some time there, can you tell us a little bit more about the roles that you had and the work you did while at Amazon? Yeah, early days, I was uh, involved with the, uh, if you may recall, back in, 2000, uh, in 2002, there was the uh, large enterprise uh, deals that Amazon did with Toys R Us and Target. I was actually on the enterprise integration team uh, back in 2002, bringing Target on board with Amazon, which basically meant we... Uh, powered all of Target's um, experiences for Target.com, also did all the fulfillment for Target from our FCs. And finally, it was a two-way joint relationship where Target sold on Amazon, and then Amazon also got an opportunity to sell some items on Target. That was my first stint there, which was great uh, to see what was going on. That didn't last so long for Amazon because ultimately after the term of the contract, they, they went their own way, which we expected. Uh, from there, I ended up getting involved with uh, inventory management, which kind of became a critical part of my career there. To an extent, almost getting typecast as being the inventory guy. I built a lot of tools and methodologies and mechanisms for managing inventory at Amazon for the hardline spark line, and ultimately getting really involved in automating inventory procurement uh, end-to-end. From there, I was asked to take on a, a role to uh, manage um, Mobile electronics, which was a category inside of electronics. Back then, we sold iPods and GPSs and stuff like that, which uh, today we don't really talk about much, but we were one of the uh, biggest categories for that uh, online and offline. And then finally, uh, did a few stints outside of that, moved into reverse logistics to run Amazon Warehouse. Back then, it was called Warehouse Deals. We were the uh, returns platform from Amazon, so we would take back all the returns dynamically dispose those either through liquidation or refurbishment through what we call grading and resold them under the subsidiary name Amazon Warehouse Deals. That became one of the biggest businesses on Amazon FBA. We were a big FBA client internally. We were also a big web store client. If you remember Web Store, which is no longer yep. there anymore. Um, and grew that business quite dramatically. It was a, um, you know, from a cash flow perspective, a great business because we weren't liquidating inventory. 
and then uh, moved on and sort of spun out a bunch of other businesses out of it. Uh, Amazon Trading was one that came out of that, which was um, uh, competing with GameStop and Best Buy, et cetera, and, and uh, being able to give customers the opportunity to trade their items in, such as video games and uh, iPhones, et cetera, versus selling it to a local store or on eBay. And then uh, also what came out of that was Amazon Buyback, which was our big competitor for textbooks. We would give... Uh, Textbooks, not as a rental, but instead uh, they could buy the textbook when the season was on and then return the textbook when they were done studying for that semester. That became a pretty decent sized business as well. And then finally, Amazon Basics was sort of the last part of my stint there where we um, I was handed off the Amazon Basics business very early to scale it from zero to where we ended up taking it in the first year and effectively launching the first 250 items on Amazon Basics and that HDMI cable. I remember back in the day, it hit a million units sold. Um, I wanna say in our first year or the first 18 months, something like that, it was a very large number. And we knew we had a business on our hands. And funny enough, you know, um, back then, the original name for Amazon uh, Basics was actually Amazon Smart. And for some reason, Jeff didn't like that. So we went with uh, Amazon Basics because we were basic. But then, it, you know, as you can see now today, probably one of the biggest private label businesses in the world. So um, really enjoyed my journey there and very fortunate to have been there during that time. That's an incredible career in seven plus years. Uh, a lot of different impressive businesses. Obviously, Amazon Basics is a huge business now. You scaled that very quickly, but has grown much bigger since your time there. It's fascinating for me to listen to the range of different businesses that you ran. You know, I was trying to pinpoint a theme and I think... What stands up for me, Amazon really talks about having three core functional strengths, one being retail, another being operations, and another being technology. And listening to the different roles you had, which you know at the outset can seem very different, I think each had a very deep hand in those three functional buckets. Yeah. And we, you know, we you've probably heard of this many times before, but we had this concept of two pizza teams. And uh, when I took over um, some of these specific areas, trade-in, buyback, we were in this two-pizza team mode where it was a very small team launching something quite complex, but with a single-threaded owner. And just being that single-threaded owner in the Amazon environment is so critical, and it differentiates Amazon from everybody else. And I quickly learned that going to eBay right after, which was the exact opposite of Amazon. So uh, no, it was uh, the operational components are very, very important in, uh, in being successful uh, at Amazon. Yeah. And I'd love to tease that out a little bit more for listeners. It's maybe easy to hear about a program like Amazon Buyback and think, oh, you know, that, that sounds pretty straightforward. Somebody's on the other end saying there's demand for this textbook. I'm going to buy it back, ship it to this address, and we'll put it back in inventory obviously much more complex than that. Can you give us a sense for some of the stakeholder teams that you had to work with? Yeah, I mean, you can imagine working with the customer experience team was a, a big part of the equation because at Amazon, we have this we have this concept called CXBR, the customer experience bar raiser. So anything you put on that buy box or anything you put on that detail page requires a certain level of rigor and approvals across the board. So think about our pizza team had developer resources, but we still had to rely on other teams to be able to make it all happen. So it would be customer experience, um, so product management team, fulfillment team, of course, because they are going to be receiving these products. So uh, last mile and fulfillment. 
And then, of course, internally uh, getting it uh, all checked and balanced with the specific categories like books, video games, electronics, so that it's not disrupting their business, but more accretive to what they're trying to do. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of cross-functional um, uh, work that has to be done. But, you know, at Amazon, once there was S-Team approval, which was the sort of once the S-Team is approved, it's all engines go. Um, you don't really see a lot of friction after that because a lot of people are on board with what needs to get done. Now it's all about can we build the absolute best experience for the customer or not? The hardest part about building businesses like trade-in and buyback were the surges that we saw during peaks. So we would go for weeks and weeks and weeks with like, you know, just a few trade-ins coming in. And then all of a sudden we're talking hundreds of thousands coming in in that week. So that, that scaling is what made it hard. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's what we trained for and, and we're prepared to take care of. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it still had a few of those all hands on deck moments. I'm really curious. You mentioned the customer bar raiser team, the operations, the retail books team, and some of these other stakeholders you had to work with. On these programs, you were the single threaded owner, right? The business owner for the this program, the success of the program. What types of mechanisms or processes did you rely on to make sure that you were getting the right inputs, the right engagement from these various teams, knowing that you couldn't be in a hundred places at once? Yeah, great question. I think the the part that keeps everybody on track is just the customer obsession part at Amazon, at least until I was there, um, which is all about, is this the right experience for the customer? Which includes things like, are we the only ones bidding on that book? Should there be other people? Could other people have a better price for that book. So building out that bidding platform. So it's just not us as in warehouse deals bidding on that product coming in. It's actually a variety of other competitors too. And getting everybody on board with, with that requires a lot of rigorous exercise and documenting what you're going to be doing. So that six pager mentality and writing out how we're going to go about what we're going to do and who is going to be responsible for what. I think that's really helpful. And, you know, you can't do that in PowerPoints. It's just not something that's uh, that's easy to do. Right. We've been talking a little bit about how you audit the businesses that you've been running. And I think this really gets facile at the dive deep leadership principle that Amazon has. It's certainly something just by nature of the different programs and businesses that you own, you had to develop and have as a leader at Amazon. One of the components of the, the leadership principle says that leaders are skeptical when metrics and anecdote differ. Can you share an example of a time when maybe the data was was showing one thing, but you came across a customer or order anecdote that that led you to dig into what was happening at an individual customer level that exposed an opportunity or an issue? Yeah, um, there's a bunch of examples, but one that was quite glaring was when I took over Amazon Warehouse, and we had our first, uh, we used to call it Jaws Directs, this is the Wilkie meeting, and we presented our plan. The metric that was being used to measure the success of warehouse deals was this metric called recovery percent, which is essentially asset recovery in terms of what the cost was and how much we recovered. What does that mean? That means basically we got a return for a, let's just take an example, a book that cost us 10 bucks. And we were able to resell it for $88.50. So our recovery was 85%. The problem with that fancy metric was it was it was a bit too optimistic. 
So we internally, uh, when we took over the team, felt that this just seems too good to be true. Like, how are we recovering 85%? Let's just do the total dead net on what is the real recovery. Well, we quickly unpacked it and realized that not only were we taking out on the return side the best inventory to come to warehouse deals and the worst just getting liquidated. So our metrics always looked wonderful because guess what? We were picking the, the cream of the crop, bringing it in and then reselling it. So at a high level, the metric looked amazing. But internally, when we looked at, well, how is the entire reverse logistics space doing? We realized that that is not the right metric to measure. And from all the customer data that we looked at on how much we were exposing in terms of that inventory coming back and making it available to customers, we realized that we needed to have this concept called real-time disposition, which enabled us to be more vigilant on what's coming back and measuring our total recovery based on all returns from Amazon, not just warehouse deals. So that fancy, good-looking metric of 80, 90% was really not that because we were liquidating a bunch of inventory, we were donating a bunch of inventory, and we were returning a bunch of inventory back to the vendor. So what was the true metric that came out of it in the end? And it was lower than that, of course. But that was the kind of rigorous deep dive we had to do to figure out, okay, are we being honest to ourselves or not in this? And it, is this truly a viable business? And that's so those are the types of exercises we did because no matter how good the numbers looked, we always had to question, why are they looking so good? Are they really what they need to be? And that's where, you know, the one example, this, this one comes to my mind was because for us, it was easy to go at a weekly business review or a quarterly business review and just be like, oh, wow, look at our numbers. We're kicking ass. Well, not really, because you're liquidating 40% of the rest of the inventory. What about that? That's being sold at 30 cents on the dollar. So why isn't that part of the math? So blending it all together and having a holistic view to the, the customer and the business is what we focused on. And it kept us always honest in the process. That's a really interesting example to walk through because I, I can completely relate how you have this really high recovery rate. You're getting a lot back on the dollar. Things look like they're all rosy and you're super successful. But then once you really dug into it, you realized there was more opportunity and you held yourself to a higher bar. But how did you go about identifying that there was opportunity for more there? Like, what was the exercise? Yeah, so at, so at Amazon, you know, again, I haven't been there for a while, but at least back then, there was this concept of weekly business review. Every team had a WBR. If you ran a business, you had a WBR. And for that, you have to collect all the input metrics and then talk to those metrics. And you have a simple talk track on how you report to those. For a category, it's selection, price, and experience. For a business like mine, it was more about, okay, what were the total returns? How much flowed through warehouse deals? How much went through the rest? So where we discovered it was, A, when we took over the business, we wanted to know, is this truly a viable business? Should we be having a business called warehouse deals? And that's always a question at Amazon because that question of like, should we be in this or not, should always exist. So when we started unpacking, we realized, well, only X percent, I don't remember anymore, but only X percent actually shows up into our uh, grading lane. Where's the rest going? And why is it going over there? And that's when we discovered like, well, maybe this is not the right metric because we're literally reporting on the best of the best. What about the rest? And what's funny is 
we realized very quickly that in the retail industry, there's various ways vendors take product back. There's a concept called RTV, return to vendor. There's a concept called defective allowances, which is a a vendor will basically give you an allowance on COGS, on the cost of goods sold, so you can then just own the inventory and do whatever you want with it. Amazon ended up moving towards that defective allowance concept because of what we were doing and a lot of the effort that we put in. So it's a cascading effect of just diving deep into what makes sense. Because if you return all the inventory, it's actually very costly to return. All the money is being made by the carrier, nobody else. So back to your question, we were always skeptical coming in. Like, how could this be so good? Let's unpack it more. And we discovered a bunch of stuff out of that. I really like that question of, should we be in this business in asking that not just at launch, but throughout running that business and not relying on a vanity metric to confirm that decision, but being highly skeptical, like you said. Yeah, the, the, the vanity metric is always scary there because you have to always look out for the, you know, the, why are the dogs not barking? Like what's off, what's wrong. Um, and, and I think the moment you get, and this is what I found in companies outside of Amazon is that the management through high fives is, is a lot more prevalent and you see a lot more of like, oh yeah, things look great. Don't even dive deeper. I think you have to dive even deeper when things look great because there's definitely something in there. Why is it so good? Why are we so much better than everybody else? There's got to be a really good reason. And typically you find that there are gaps in the middle. That's an excellent reminder to dive deep, not just when things look bad, but even more so when things look good, especially if it's too good to be true. Absolutely. So another component of the dive deep principle states that no task is beneath a leader. And, you know, at Amazon, there are stories of Jeff Wilkie going and working with a fulfillment center worker at Amazon, Jeff Bezos listening on customer calls and identifying the and on cord. So there are these stories of being on the front lines and really understanding what's happening, even if that's the job of somebody that's maybe an hourly worker or somebody that is disconnected from what a leader at maybe some organizations would typically be involved with. How did this concept of no task is beneath us influence you and your time at Amazon? I mean, for me, Amazon was kind of a boot camp because I got in early enough that I was young enough to be impacted by that experience. And, you know, your early part of your career has such an enormous influence in how you operate down the road, right? And I was still younger and um, I was always willing to dive deeper anyway. But the fact that at Amazon, everybody was diving even deeper was actually helpful. And yeah, there were the plaid shirts and Q4 and all the holiday uh, madness that used to happen with our capacity always running out. From a high level, it's hard to find that level of rigor at other organizations. So having gone to other companies after Amazon, I have yet to see that. So it is definitely a sweet spot for Amazon to have and, and maintain, which is be really good at setting the strategy, but also be really good at diving right into the details and being involved on the front lines. We had to go through uh, customer FC training. We have to go through customer service training. We have to go through seller training. And all of those things were extremely helpful and impactful in my career because I got to see from the front lines, what is a merchant dealing with? What is a frontline FC worker dealing with? And what is a, a, a traditional CS rep dealing with when they're getting phone calls inbound? What can we do as a business to help them not have that friction? 
And uh, you don't often see that. And I think it was super helpful. You mentioned that this was a great boot camp for you earlier in your career. Have there been applications of this be on the front lines, know what's going on that you've taken with you in the subsequent roles you've had since Amazon? You know, there've been some that I've taken with me that have worked and some that have completely bombed. Um, and I think they've bombed for other Amazonians too, who left Amazon and tried to implement them um, from what I've heard. Um, so I'm super curious, what is bombed and what has worked? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about the bomb first. Um, so this notion of, you know, I wrote probably hundreds of six pagers and went through, uh, you know, it's a living hell trying to write those all the time. But, you know, they do instill a lot of uh, core values of how Amazon operates. Uh, when you leave Amazon, you quickly think that, you know, the rest of the world is not that smart. They don't know what they're doing. And you need to come in and bring in the six pagers. And uh, so when I got to eBay um, and I was setting the strategy for all global shipping for our leadership team, John Donahue, et cetera, everything was in PowerPoints. And it was all a lot of hand-waving and, you know, just there's no depth to those PowerPoints. It's all improvised on the fly. So I recommended that, you know, let's just, let's write a six page on this. Let's do this properly. And I did. Um, and I tried to instill that across the organization to whatever degree I could, right? But once a culture of a company is established, once you have established a culture of the way of working, eBay being a 20-year-old company at that point, you can come in and try to brute force some of this and, and get people on board. But to do this, this has to be very endemic to the organization. It has to be at the core and at the nucleus of how you operate. And no matter how much I tried to get people to move to out of the PowerPoints and into the six pagers, it was not something that was trivial to do. Um, and ultimately, everybody just come, kept coming back to the, you know, the McKinsey format and the Bain format because, you know, EVA had an army of consultants. I mean, at Amazon, you couldn't allow a consultant to enter the door. And at eBay, you had pretty much, I don't think you can name a consulting company that didn't work there. So you have to measure where you are and be smart about what's truly possible versus not. So I think in my, as I look back at like what could have worked and what couldn't have worked was, you know, trying to force this thing down their throat, which they're just not going to listen. They may listen because here's a new guy who wants to do this. Let's help him but they're not bought in. And if they're not bought in, you're not going to get anywhere unless you bring in all your people and change the organization. Um, so I would say that. And I think a lot of people think that this six pager mentality is like, oh yeah, let's just implement that and everybody's going to be great. No, I fundamentally disagree. It doesn't work like that. And uh, the inertia that exists in a culture inside a company that's already pretty mature will not enable you to do that in a successful way. And even if you write those six pagers, they won't be the quality that you're, you're used to. So that would be one, which is the learning from that was find a better hybrid model to get everybody on board. Trying to force yourself into a certain format without getting the buy-in is not really a smart choice. Um, at Groupon, we had six pagers, et cetera. So it was a lot easier, right? We had OP1s, OP2s, we had all of that. That wasn't the case at eBay, the same with Staples. Um, on the, on the good side, I think I was a bar raiser for many years at Amazon. And when I left Amazon, I, you know, um, having gone through the process of doing, you know, hundreds, if not over a thousand interviews, 
was hiring is such a critical decision for a leader that if you get that wrong, the payback is really bad. So instilling that hire the best and raise the bar in the hiring has probably been the biggest one that I've taken with me wherever I've gone, which is just, we don't hire for need. We hire for talent. And if you go to a lot of organizations today and companies, they are hiring for, I need this person right now. This is the best person we can get. Let's just get them. That's absolutely the wrong way to do it. That's fundamentally flawed. And when I built my organizations, it was all around, are we raising the bar with every hire we're making? And if we're not, we should not be hiring this person. And I think that has played a massive role in my moves from Amazon to eBay, eBay to Groupon, all the way to Staples, and then on to Google, because a lot of those folks that I brought with me, I mean, they'd raised the bar where they were previously, and then they hired people who were raising the bar. So I think that uh, momentum continued. I really like those two examples. And I think that really what you've illustrated is that some of these practices at Amazon can be a, a bit more ubiquitous in their application, a bit more, you know, this works and it works everywhere. Maybe the bar raiser is a good idea in most organizations. Whereas, as you mentioned, with a six-page narrative and that doc writing culture, if it's not endemic to the core of the business and it's not supported at all levels, you know, it's it's just going to be pushing a boulder up the hill and uh, likely not successful. It can be very successful if done the right way and supported, but not a one-size-fits-all. I'm curious, Fassel, maybe to flip the question a little bit now. We've talked a little bit about what from Amazon has been applicable versus not applicable outside of Amazon. You've spent now even more time since Amazon at a number of top organizations. Are there practices or different principles and and mechanisms that you've seen work really well at other companies that maybe Amazon could do a better job at or should consider implementing? You know, there's one that stands out all the time, which is when I left Amazon, the 10 leadership principles, and I know them by heart, probably still by now, but there was no leadership principle around empathy and the ability to listen. And uh, I think that for whatever things were not so great at eBay or at um, Staples or Google, the good things about these organizations were they were a lot more empathetic to the employees. And when I say empathetic, I don't mean just give them a hall pass on every failure. It's, it's more about the ability to listen to what they have to say versus having a very robotic way of dealing with your employees. Um, I think Amazon's Achilles heel in terms of talent management has been the empathy part. There was no empathy. It was kind of dog eat dog and work for me because I sort of thrive in that environment. It's totally fine. But it didn't really instill in me the capability of being able to really understand what the other person is saying and truly listen instead of thinking in my head, how am I going to respond to this before they finish talking? That's not listening. That's not active listening. That's just like passive listening and then jumping in. And frankly, in Amazon meetings, it was all about like, you know, who's going to one up the other person. And in a way, it's really competitive and great because you're bringing data and you're, you've got a point of view and you disagree and you commit, which other organizations don't, right? They, their flaws are they disagree and they don't really commit and they fake it till they kind of get to that point. Amazon, you actually disagree and you do commit. That's just the way it is. That said, I think 
e-based culture um, on the empathy and even Staples, I would say, and Google, uh, way, way better. Something Amazon needs to take a page from their their book. Um, I know they're trying to talk about it now, but I doubt that, you know, again, it's not endemic in the culture. It is not something Amazon is good at. They're not an empathetic crew. That's just who they are. And so if you're looking for empathy, don't go to Amazon. If you're looking for a single-threaded ownership model where you're going to execute and do some amazing things for your customers and drive business results, Amazon is the place to be. Um, there's no attaboy at Amazon. There's no one's going to come and pat you on your back. In fact, if you don't get yelled at back when I was there, that's kind of a validation that you're doing a good job. Um, and, you know, I, I love that. I, I actually really liked my time there. I, I, I would still argue Amazon from a workplace perspective, from an execution standpoint, no place like it at all. In fact, Google is kind of sleepy town. If you want to retire as an Amazonian, you go to Google. It's the best place to go. Um, and vice versa, Amazonians don't do well at Google, if you notice. I don't know if you've seen how many have gone or not. And Googlers probably can't survive at Amazon. I mean, this is no way. No way. Because they're used to a whole different... I think but there's a middle ground that has to be established. So at Fabric, just to put two cents about Fabric here, our single biggest value, our first value as a company value is seek to understand before being understood. And I established that value my second week at the company when I sent out the email to the whole company was because even today when there are internal arguments about which way we go with my team, I literally get one-line emails from my team that has the value on the header. And I immediately know I have to capitulate to, let's talk about this. And literally, it will be like a one-liner on the subject line saying, seek to, did you not seek to understand before being understood? And I love that because we're building a culture that is ingrained in our values. And, you know, we say it like it is and we insist on the highest standards and we have more gratitude than attitude. Those are things that are really important. But when it comes to Amazon, I would say the active listening and empathy was a big gap. Yeah, I love how you've taken the best from these different organizations and pulled that together now as the CEO of Fabric, you know, obviously with with your own flavor and the uniqueness that I'm sure makes Fabric culture what it is and, and empathy being one great example of something that you didn't pick up at Amazon, probably lacking a bit there, but you you were able to see and, and develop that outside and, and now establish that in, in really cool ways. Talking a little bit more about Fabric, if somebody, let's say, were to come from Amazon to Fabric, what would they see in your leadership approach and, and where might they see some elements of, of Amazon practices or principles in the fabric culture? Yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of Amazonians join. So good thing is that we've got a bunch of them, our CTOs from Amazon, um, our uh, VP of engineering is from Amazon as well. We've just hired a few other people from there. So I think the, the, the interesting part about our culture is in our leadership team, we've got folks from Amazon people from eBay, our co-founder, and our SVP of product is from Google and spent a decade there. So what we're actually getting is this amazing hybrid of the best practice from each one blended together. The Amazon folks coming in are expecting high velocity, customer obsession, and innovation, right? Simple. 
That's sort of what Amazon expects. The folks coming from Google are expecting, yes, all of that, but also like the ability to take a step back, listen, look at a 50,000 foot view and really, really address the longer term challenges as well while executing and finding what you're good at and really focusing on that versus, you know, at Amazon, we did a lot of stuff. So it really depends on the flavor of who you're hiring, but I think they would join Fabric because A, we're, you know, we're rocket ship in Seattle. So it's, it's a local company. Second is, um, although we're very global and a lot of folks are not here and spend time outside, I would say that uh, the natural affinity of having single threaded ownership and driving for results and insisting on higher standards for customers, that's sort of ingrained in our culture. And I think that's what Amazonians should expect when they come here. And if they don't see it, they need to revert back to the values and remind everybody what needs to happen. And, and that's, that's the culture we want. I love that you've taken all of these best practices and and synthesized them in this unique way, but that you're also very open to feedback. And you clearly see this as not a one and done, but in evolution in continually making sure that your culture is evolving in the right direction and that you're getting that closed loop feedback to make sure that employees are embodying it in the right way. Absolutely. And at no point in time, you know, I always tell everybody that you could have a leadership position here at Fabric or manage a, a, a good sized team and have people reporting to you, but you're never too important. You're just not because everybody's equal. And, and that leaves the door open all the time to have that dialogue. I'm like, okay, well, what is bothering you? What can we do to fix it? And I think that requires an openness to evolving even the values like over time. Yeah. So, yeah. I kind of, I kind of like that. And, you know, honestly, I, I, I don't want to become like any of these other draconian organizations that are like set in their ways and never want to change. Like, no, that's not who we are. That's great. Well, Fasil, it's been fantastic talking with you. We've covered a lot on Amazon and what you've learned at Amazon, certainly what you've learned outside of Amazon. And I think you're certainly the first guest we've had on this podcast that has had as many post-Amazon career steps in in terms of other companies and now as a CEO at a fast-growing startup. So a very unique perspective. Coming back to this idea and principle of diving deep, what advice would you have for a manager or a leader in any organization in terms of how they should think about really auditing and understanding their business? Yeah, I would say this. um, When I left Amazon, and you're right, my experience is very unique because To get out of Amazon and still be successful is not a given. You will see a lot of, in fact, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday that, you know, a lot of Amazonians get out of Amazon and and there's an expectation like, oh, this person's going to be amazing. Yes, but Amazon provides you these guardrails, this, this framework that you are inserted into and then the velocity around you that if you're good, you're going to be very good. However, when you're plucked out of Amazon and put into another environment that doesn't have that framework, doesn't have that, those guardrails, doesn't have that structure and mechanisms, all of a sudden, you're fish out of water. And for me, it was surviving that and thriving in it in other environments in, in the time period that I did. Majority of it was surround yourself with people who are better than you at what they do. So that's one. So... In order to dive deep, well, you, I can't look at a thousand things. I'm, I'm a CTO at Staples. I, I have you know five thousand people on the team. 
I can't look at everything. You have to get people who are better than you at some of those things so that you are synthesizing that data in the right way possible. But I believe my piece of advice would be having spent time at Alphabet, Google, eBay, other places versus Amazon is that where some of these companies don't do as well as Amazon is because in order to be successful at Amazon, you have to be able to describe your business in detail at whatever forum and be able to understand the unit economics, the customer experiences, and the, the minutia down to even, I remember there were meetings I was sitting in where Jeff would know the PO numbers to the inbound purchase orders. And I was just shocked. Like, how does the CEO know this? It's a hot PO. Okay. Well, there's a thread going on with the PO number on it. So have excruciating level of focus on the detail, but at the same time, be able to go 50,000 feet up and have a clear view of where you're going, but also come back down in that same sentence and be able to demonstrate that you can manage the high level and the detail. What you end up seeing in other organizations is a lot of these leaders are just high level. They're not in the detail. There is no WBR. There is no Cox cost out. There is no MBR. It's all just PowerPoints and high level fluff. And no one is really getting into the minutia and asking the hard questions and actually doing something about it and following up on it and building a metric that measures it. This is what makes Amazon very special. It is a very metrics driven organization, but those metrics all lead to one place, which is the customer. And if you go to other companies, it is not always the customer. It's profit. It's revenue growth. It's other outputs that are not as relevant as sort of insisting on this high standard for the customer. So I believe that to be successful as a leader outside of Amazon, you've got to take those core principles of being able to set your tenets for what you're doing, but also go super deep into the details all the time without becoming a micromanager, of course, uh, because you've hired a team to go do that. But they need to know how you operate. And that's where when I bring in my team, they already know how I operate. So there's not much training to do. Um, so I kind of stay out of their lane, but they know what questions are coming. So uh, it's been it's been amazing. And, you know, thanks for having me. And um, the journey has been quite spectacular so far. There's just so many interesting topics that we've hit on today. I really like your last point about how to operate at all levels of a business as a leader, but even doing so at scale and you know, having swim lanes and a team of experts and those that can be owners. Really great advice. I'm sure listeners have come away with some interesting ideas and stories and hopefully applications and things that they can go and try. And certainly sounds like you're building a really interesting culture, taking the best of these different leadership principles and components from many of today's top tech companies and creating something that's uniquely interesting and successful as we've been seeing at Fabric. Where can listeners go to learn more about you or learn more about Fabric? Um, they can go to fabric.inc. There's a, there's a lot of resources there. We are pretty active on um, LinkedIn as well if folks want to learn more about us. That said, you know, our door is always open. They can come to me or any of our employees. We have about 170 people now across the world. I think we're in like nine time zones. And I would be more than happy to field any questions coming in, into our organization. But our, our team is actively always looking for talent. 
and folks to come and join us. We do this uh, one mini podcast, uh, nothing as, as special as yours, but uh, we call it Coffee and Commerce, where ex-Amazonians come in and we go through customer experiences for different e-commerce businesses. And we post that on, uh, on Twitter and other channels where we talk about, you know, what could be better in these e-commerce experiences uh, for these retailers. And we try to have a guest at those. We'd love to get Amazon guests to come in, not just to critique, but also to provide feedback on what is great about what other people are doing and how other folks can benefit from it. And how Fabric, in that case, because we are headless, can help with accelerating some of those experiences. So, uh, yeah, there's many ways to get in touch with us. Social, our website, directly chat with us or set up some time with us. We'd love to, we'd love to keep our door open. Wonderful. Well, I appreciate everything you're doing to help bring others along and keep the door open. I really enjoyed our conversation today. So thanks, Vassal, for uh, sitting down with me and talking Amazon and talking about your career journey and what you've taken that's influenced your leadership approach as you build a successful company. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me.